all of us have probably had times in our life where we feel like we've had it all. Everything is going well. We have that job, or we have that partner, or we the friends. That's good. Life feels like it's in progress, but you're not satisfied. Like you might, at least on paper, every seem everything seems to be looking really, really good. But there's something about you that feels discontent. You might even feel guilty about feeling discontent. You might be like I shouldn't feel this way, but some things just kind of aren't matching up. Now, we probably also know the feeling of having nothing at all. Anytime there's a part of you that's oppressed, or all of you that's oppressed, when we're in a difficult spot, when something or someone who has more power than us is keeping us down, that feels like we feel like we have nothing at all, and we feel enslaved. And in all likelihood, you've also had times in your life where you've felt like you've lost it all. You made a mistake. You said something stupid. You acted selfishly. You, you, maybe something you immediately regretted. Maybe something you begrudgingly regretted. You've done something to offend someone else, and there's that retching feeling in your stomach. That's called shame. All of us have experienced moments of having everything, of, of having it all, of having nothing at all, and of losing it all. And all of us have experienced... And all, all these things in different times in our lives. And all these things, they, they, they bring discontentment, they bring enslavement, they bring living in shame. Now, in this section in Acts that we're going to look at, we read three stories of people in three very different spots. And what we find is that the range in the range of human experience, from having it all, to having nothing at all, to losing it all, we see that Jesus will always give us what we need. Jesus will always give us what we need. And only Jesus can give us what we need. When we're discontent, he gives contentment. When we're oppressed, he gives freedom. When we're shamed, he gives joy. Having contentment, freedom, and joy in the range of human experiences allows us to live with open hearts. By ourselves, we're more than happy to live with closed hearts, or at least not as open as they can be or as they should be. But when Jesus is alive and working in our lives, allows us to live with open hearts. Closed hearts live in discontentment and think it's okay. Closed hearts live in oppression. Closed hearts live in shame. And open hearts live in contentment, freedom, and joy. And this is what Jesus gives us. So let's see where I get that from. Where does that information come from? Well, let's, uh, we'll see where that comes from. But first, a little bit of a background to this section in Acts that we have here. Uh, this is Redeemer. Uh, this is our 21st week in Acts. This is a, a marathon kind of series. Uh, we're trucking through this book, and I've, I've really been enjoying kind of going through it and, and looking at the book as a whole, and I feel like it's just super pertinent, super relevant to where we are now. And what we get to see is how depending on the Spirit is actually good for us. And we get to see that over and over and over. And it's not just good for us. It's also something that's good for other people. And we see that over and over and over again. And if you're like me, a light has shined on some areas where you rely on yourself more than you realized. And that's not always fun to have that reality come to the surface, but it's a good thing. Because it's an invitation from God to change. And that's what we get as we bring our lives to these stories. Now, relying on the Holy Spirit means we're not going to do some things. And as we see in the story, that's kind of what happens, Paul and his crew are kept from some areas of, of 
travel. They're kept from traveling. It says like the Lord, the Spirit didn't allow us to go there. Well, what what was it like? How did they know it was the Spirit? Was it an area that was guarded well, or they just turned away? Did they come up against hostility? We don't know. Luke does not give us those specifics, but whatever it was, they knew that it was a spirit saying, okay, so don't go there. So just as relying on the Holy Spirit means we don't do some things, if we rely on him, we're going to end up in places where we didn't exactly foresee. We thought we were going here, and we were told no. A no to one place, though, it leaves room to a yes for another place. If we're always in situations that we find comfortable, or in places that we've already planned and mapped out, we're probably not being led by the Holy Spirit as much as we think we are. Because He can disrupt things sometimes. Not all the time, He doesn't have to, but we need to make sure we're listening and leaving, leaving that possibility of reality open. So Paul gets a vision. A man from Macedonia calling out to him. In the story of Acts, the gospel hasn't yet made it to Europe. In fact, what we've seen is mostly like rural areas in Asia where the gospel seems to be flourishing. And now we get to see where the gospel finally comes to our continent, to Europe. We get to see how that happens. And we've been tracing the promise that Jesus gave the disciples all the way back in uh, chapter 1, in verse 8. It says, but, and this is on the back of your Acts books, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem is their city. Judea and Samaria is a larger region. The ends of the earth, obviously, the ends of the earth. Europe, for most of these people. So, so far, when people who aren't Jewish become believers, which is what we're looking at, that's a Gentile, someone who's not Jewish. When they become believers, it's mostly been in these rural Asian areas, but now it's Europe. Now it's cities. Now we're in commercial centers. We're in like important areas, prosperous areas. How will the gospel grow in places where people are mostly rich and comfortable? When you think of Charlton, you think generally people are mostly rich and comfortable. It's not completely true, but surely it is true to some of us. The story, uh, the city in this story is Philippi. Now, Philippi was known for being a proud, uh, a pr- known for being proud to be citizens of Rome. They they got their citizenship in the kind of this really kind of grand way, and it was very they're very proud to be uh, to be a Philippian was to be proud, kind of like. Being a Mancunian, we're very, uh, very proud. Uh, typically, Paul and his posse, this is how they would normally work. They would normally go to a synagogue uh, to talk about Jesus with people. Uh, but this is not a Jewish area, so there is no synagogue. Uh, if you're a Jew and there isn't a synagogue, the place where you'd normally gather to pray would be by the river. And so that's where Paul goes and, and he finds uh, some women who are gathered there who, who are praying. And the first person they come across in this story that we're told, is Lydia. So let's talk about Lydia. Lydia is someone who has it all. Someone who has it all. The first European convert is Lydia. She's well off. She's a good business person. She's an influencer. She deals in purple cloth. This is like a luxury good. She has a household, which means she has to manage and, and pay and care for servants. Lydia is probably like what a lot of people think Trollton is like on the outside. You know, well-off, comfortable, maybe a bit hipstery, doing okay, basically. Now, I don't know if she has a hipster vibe, like if she bakes her own bread and listens to bands you've never heard of. I'd like to think so. Uh, But what the important thing is here 
is what we're told is the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Verse 14. So someone who apparently had it all didn't. There was something that she had to open her heart to that was more than what she already had. But in the eyes of everybody in the world, like, that's done, you're, you're good, just like stay like that, you're golden. Well, she didn't have it all, not at first anyway. Money, power, influence, household, comfort, even style, whatever the thing might be. These are all good, but Lydia knew that there was something more. Lydia knew those weren't enough. On the outside, she was fine, but she was appropriately discontent before meeting Jesus. There's a discontentment that can be kind of toxic and nothing is ever going to be good enough. But there's an appropriate level of discontent of us wanting more of Jesus, wanting to know more of our creator, of our God, and wanting to be connected more to him. See, there's no way that the outside aspects of life that we spend some of so much of our time getting and filling us up with, there's no way those can actually really satisfy us and fill us up in the way that we will feel content at the end. Because we're made for more. Not just for more in quantity. It's not like just more money, better jobs, more friends, more you know cool stuff in your house or whatever. We're made for something qualitatively different. Something that is other than stuff, than money, than comfort, than riches. Jim Carrey has this great Quote, uh, he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Jim Carrey, he's experienced a lot of greatness. He's like, I, I, just, I just wish everyone could experience it to know that that's actually not worth chasing after. There's more to life. There's more to life. Contentment is satisfaction. It's, oh, it's like that. It's, it's not tied to our finances. It's not tied to our family. It's not tied to our friends, our career, our ambitions, as good as they all can possibly be. It's tied to God. Remember verse 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart and she responded to Paul's message. So who did the opening for Lydia's heart? The Lord opened her heart. The Lord did the work. And what did she get? An open heart that responded to Paul's message. Paul's message we know from being in this book for 21 weeks is that Jesus died so that we can be forgiven. So our past can be behind us and we don't have to be plagued by the past dragging us back into the past. Paul also tells us that Jesus rose again so that we can desire good things. Not just do good things, but actually want to do good things. To change our hearts, not just our hands. And he's ruling over the world now in power so we can have a future hope or even a, in the, a future hope in the present, to something more. There's forgiveness. There's good changed desires. There's hope. This is an open heart, and this is what Lydia found when she found Jesus. But it can be easy for people who have been around the church, especially if been around the church for any kind of time, to pick up this kind of language but not actually follow through with our lives. It's easy for us to say, yeah, I opened my heart to Jesus, but actually not really have a different life but not actually follow through. To truly find our contentment with Jesus is difficult and it's ongoing. And it will be different and difficult for different reasons. When you have kids, when you have careers, when you have parents who are aging, when you like, all, all, just list all the life things, there's all sorts of things that we can find very difficult in this world. And when we're disillusioned, 
Anybody? Anybody disillusioned now? When we're disillusioned, we will be. We probably are. Maybe even now as you're watching me, disillusioned with, with the person who's speaking. When we're disillusioned, what's happening is we are brought face-to-face with something that we put our hope in but has failed us. That's what disillusionment is. We are discontented with reality. The gift of being in the difficult place of disillusionment is that we can place that hope in something better, in in someone better than we did before. So as much as it's not fun to go through the process of being disillusioned, it actually shows our hopes were in the wrong spot to begin with. And we can use that difficulty for good. But we can only do this if we have an open heart. Being disillusioned and living in discontent has equal power to create cold, closed hearts. Just being in that spot doesn't change us. It's what we do while we're in that spot. And feeling lets us down. So often we're kind of uh, tempted to kill that feeling. But that's not really living. That's not really living. Jesus gives us the gift of being content. So that's Lydia. Let's talk about uh, the female slave in this story. Nameless female slave. Someone who has nothing at all. Not even a name in this story. Contrasted with Lydia, we see this person, this slave. She has a spirit that allows her to see the future. What in the world? How amazing would that be? If you could see the future, how would you use it? I'd like to find out when the cues at stores are at their lowest and use it for that. Or maybe something better, but probably I'd actually just be happy with that. But this spirit... Instead of bringing her riches or life without cues, brought her chains. The spirit was not a good thing for this person. She had masters. She had what the Bible says are owners. She was owned by people. These owners made the money. She didn't get the money. So if Lydia was the stereotypical view of Charlton, the slave is what residents here might say is like the real Charlton. Because it's, it's broader than just people who are living comfy lives on the outside. The real Charlton includes people who are homeless. People who are living at close margins and one paycheck away from being homeless themselves. People who are living in, with very real kind of levels of health deprivation. Especially the south part of our, of our area. Not everyone who lives here has it all, right? Of course. Now, this person, she had some translation, what some translations call a pythonic spirit. I don't know, your Bible might have that. Well, what does that mean? It's basically a spirit that was attributed to the Greek god Apollo. So, she would be at a shrine uh, for Apollo, speaking uncontrollably, and probably often in ways that didn't even kind of make any sense, unintelligible. And people would pay money to hear these sounds, and they would believe that this was like telling the future. She was a captive to this spirit. She didn't have any say. She wasn't making any money off of this. The spirit did not give her freedom. She was oppressed. No freedom. This was not a free woman. This was not an independent woman. And her spirit, though telling the future sounds pretty good on the outside, it wasn't a force for good. She wasn't in control. The spirit was. And God's mission was to spread this good news about Jesus through to the ends of the earth, throughout Europe. And this spirit was disrupting that. It's on the other side of God. It's not on the side of God. It was like having trumpets blaring every time you walk into a room or like uh, those period dramas where you know two important people walk into the room into like a ball and they get announced like Lord and Lady Darcy and as amazing as that might be once over and over and over again over multiple days it would be really frustrating. 
It would not be super okay. It would disrupt the mission, which is what it was doing. And that's what annoyed Paul so much. And so he commands the Spirit through Jesus, not through the power of Paul, but through Jesus. He uses Jesus' name, not Paul's name. He commands the Spirit to leave her. And like almost immediately, before the words even come out of Paul's mouth, the Spirit's out. The Spirit's gone. Now, we don't hear anything more about this slave. But what we do know is that Jesus' power freed her. And that's what Jesus does. He frees. But not everyone's excited about this. What is the response here? Well, So where the female slave story kind of drops off is when the owner, the oppressive owner story comes in. Because they're not very excited about it. The people who owned her could no longer make money off her. And they're, why would they be happy about that? They assume Paul and his crew aren't even Roman citizens. Remember, Philippi was super proud of being Roman citizens. They're super proud to be, um, to be from Philippi. They're like, they're not even one of us. Who are these people? What do they think they're doing? Coming over here, freeing our women. It's ludicrous. So what do Paul and Silas get? Well, they get stripped down, they get beaten, severely flogged, thrown into prison. Don't ever think that following Jesus is jumping from one happy cloud to another happy cloud. Sometimes you're going to get flogged and thrown in jail for freeing people who ought to be free. That's just how it is. Sometimes the gospel brings peace. Sometimes it disrupts the whole economy. And if you are oppressing others... Jesus desperately wants to disrupt your life. In verse 19, it says that the owners were angry because their hope of making money was gone. This person is a thing to them. Their hope of making money was gone, just used for what she could offer them. Freedom for the slave, that's what Jesus gives. And also what's revealed is the emptiness of the slave owner's hopes. The hopes of making money dashed. When Jesus is at work, the oppressed get freedom and the oppressors get justice. Jesus sets things right. Now, even though probably none of us have experienced being human trafficked before, we've all had the feeling of having nothing at all. Like slight parts, I mean, especially compared to this story and what happens in our world now. Um, it's slight, but it's still real. Just because it's slight doesn't make it any less real. We all have all had the feeling of being under the thumb of people or systems who are more powerful than us. All of us have had. And you've all heard this story from me uh, maybe a few times before, but uh, there was a time where I was accused by my father of a crime I didn't commit. In fact, he was a criminal, and he accused me so he would get a little bit better jail time. The FBI arrested me, accused me. Uh, the process went on forever. It was easily the worst two years of my life, of me and Christina's life. I went to a federal trial. I literally had no power myself. I had nothing at all. And under the injustice of being falsely accused by my father and the injustice of being under the thumb of an overzealous FBI agent who wasn't concerned that much about truth, I was oppressed Eventually, I had kind of no emotions. I just felt numb. I had no feelings. I had trouble sleeping. I was always anxious. I distrusted authority figures even more than I did previously. I desperately needed freedom. I didn't know how to get it. There was no way for me to actually get it for myself. And when the judge finally, after a trial and two years and horribleness, when the judge finally threw my case out due to there not being any evidence against me because I'm not guilty of anything... 
I felt that freedom. I felt like what it was to have that burden relieved. The world literally looked brighter the next day. I'm, I'm not even, it was almost like my eyes changed or something. I slept that night after the judge threw the case out. I think I slept like 16 hours. It was crazy, just like, like a rock. Freedom feels best to those who know what it's like to be oppressed. Freedom tasted really good that next day. And I want to never forget what that feeling is like. Because that's just a small, tiny taste of what Jesus gives us. Freedom, freedom feels best to those who know what it's like to be oppressed. So in all the areas of your life where you've experienced being oppressed, where you've experienced being under the power of someone, maybe it's abusive, maybe it's just uh, passive-aggressive, whatever it might be, when you're, not in, when you're not the one in control and someone else is in control over you, when you're lost and when you're helpless, when you feel overlooked, look to Jesus. He will set you free. You might still have some troubles. This is not saying you will not have troubles. I don't think this slave went on to live a life like Lydia afterwards. That's not the story here. That's, we're not, we don't deal in Hollywood endings. We deal in real endings with Christianity. But while you're in trouble, whatever comes your way, through Jesus, you can experience freedom. It is possible. So that's we've learned about Lydia, who has it all. We've learned about the female slave, who has nothing at all. And now we come to the jailer, someone who has lost it all. The last person here in this story. This jailer had one job. Make sure these missionaries... I mean, they're not strong, they're just missionaries. Make sure they don't get out of prison. Seems easy enough. These are ordinary men. He's a professional jailer, like professional like Roman centurion, kind of soldier, trained from an early age. Uh, these men may be ordinary, but they're, we're dealing with no ordinary kind of God. So Paul and Silas, they're beaten, they're thrown in jail. And what do they do? They're singing. They're praying. And as they're worshiping God, because their hearts have changed, so their orientation isn't horizontal merely, it's, it's vertical, it's towards God. They know God is up to something, so they can worship Him. As they are worshiping Him, there are others who are in the prison who are listening to them, others who would never have heard. Again, following the Holy Spirit will not always lead you in places you expect. I don't think they were like, oh, please, Spirit, won't you please strip us and flog us and put us into a prison? I don't think that was probably their prayer. But they knew when they ended up there that God was in control. So they're praying, they're worshiping God, others are listening to them. Paul and Silas are resilient in ways others just are not. And this isn't because they're strong. It's because Jesus himself is empowering them. Being on Jesus' mission is empowered by Jesus through his spirit. It doesn't require strong character. It requires a strong God to work through us because we're just far too weak. Whatever mission we're on, being seen as gods, as we've seen in previous uh, chapters, or getting thrown in jail, Jesus will empower you. And then, there's an earthquake. Then, the doors swing open. Then, everyone's chains come loose. How is this jailer going to explain this to the boss? Uh, he won't be able to. All, all of a sudden, the doors just kind of um, swung open, and all of a sudden, the chain just kind of like popped off their hands? It was kind of like the dog ate my homework kind of excuse. There's no way the teacher's going to buy that. There's no way his boss is going to buy that. This is probably the most intense shame that this person has ever felt in his life. He was raised and, and bred to be, to be a centurion, to 
guard people. And his sense of duty would be the highest thing that he, the highest thing in his life. The only way out of his shame, he believes, is by suicide. That's how much shame he's felt. He's like, I'm, the only way to get out of it is to kill himself. That's deep. That's dark. And maybe some of you have experienced that feeling as well. Paul, in his compassion, and this is his jailer, okay? Maybe this guy even beat him. We don't know. We're not told that. But he's definitely not on the side of people who are going to help him, help him out, at least initially. Paul, in his compassion, doesn't want to see this jailer die, though. He sees him trying to commit suicide. He's like, no, 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 don't do that. So what should have been Paul's enemy, through the power of the gospel, this jailer becomes a fellow human in need of something more. And after all this, in verse 30, we read the jailer kind of responding in this kind of, after seeing Paul want to help him, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be rescued? Like, show me. Help. The answer is believe in Jesus. Don't put your trust in your job. That leads to death for this soldier and for all of us eventually. Don't put your, your trust in the government. It can't even handle one earthquake. Put your trust in Jesus and you will be saved. The jailer cleans them up. As an early church father wrote, he washed and was washed. They go back to the jailer's house, which is like, what in the world is going on here? Prisoners going back to the jailer's house. Paul and Silas spend time talking about the gospel with the jailer and his whole household. What kind of effect now would Paul and Silas's words have on the jailer after all of this? Of course, it makes sense for them to be more influential because of all of that. The jailer believes, and his belief changes his life. They didn't have to go back to the jailer's house, but in doing so, the jailer isn't seen as neglecting his duty. So he can care for the prisoners, keep them there in his house, and when he has to present the prisoners in the future, he can do that. It's kind of an amazing situation of hospitality. See, the gospel connects unlikely people together. A jailer and a prisoner. Both would have legitimate reasons to see the other as the enemy. Completely legitimate. Uh, how unseemly for a jailer to have prisoners as his guests. To throw a party for prisoners. That's, that's, not, that's not proper. <laughs> and how improper for prisoners to regard their jailer as a friend. That's not proper either. People are supposed to be divided. But the gospel breaks down these walls that divide us. And the same can happen in a church. Someone does something to offend us, and now they're the enemy, and now we're going to separate ourselves from them forever. We draw lines that Jesus never draws. Or they believe in this political cause. Or they have this view about this thing. Like We all love to divide ourselves. That's what social media is great at, right? There's a reason why that works. It's not the problem of social media. The problem is us drawing lines that Jesus never draws. And when we see others as an enemy, we miss out on what God is up to in their lives. We totally miss out. And what kind of news can take someone from being overwhelmed by shame, on the verge of suicide, on the brink of killing themselves, to being filled with joy and throwing a party? How can, where, where does that, how does that happen? How does that work? How does that transition work? Verse 34 says that the jailer came, had come to believe in God. And not just him, but his family, his servants, the people who he loved the most in his life. And this belief changed his life. He's now he's filled with joy. 
Let's spend a minute talking about joy. What does it mean? Well, joy is gladness, it's happiness, it's liveliness. It causes people to put on parties, as with our jailer here. It's behind every time we celebrate. The kind of joy uh, that we see here isn't one that's tied to a birthday or a promotion, though, as good as those things are. It's tied to who we are. He's filled with joy. Our heart's original setting is closed off, discontent, oppressed, and shamed. If Jesus gives us new hearts, we are now open to life, contentment, freedom, and joy. If this has happened to you, your whole life would be one of joy. If this has happened to you, your whole life would be one with joy because you were dead, completely dead, and now you're alive. If that's true, you would be filled with joy. Like, I was completely dead before. Now I'm not. That's amazing. If, and God is at work to deliver more of his contentment, more of his freedom, and more of his joy every minute of our lives. The more we read about him, the more we engage his word, the more we pray, the more we get connected to the family he's called us to, the local church, the more we get this. We can't expect to experience this on our own. We can't expect us to experience this merely um, by ourselves. We can't expect this if we don't read the Bible. We can't expect this if we don't pray. Those are things that God has designed to be pathways of, of us experiencing him. And this is a joy that can persist when things are difficult. When we go through sorrow, there can still be a foundation of a joy beneath it. doesn't mean we're going to be have these like plastered smiles across our faces. It means, through Jesus, we have access to God, and God's joy is a well that never runs dry, even if there is a drought. This isn't something we just fall into. Joy is rarely easy. More often than not, it's more of a fight. It's a fight to be joyful. Because joy requires the presence of God. God has to be there because it's his joy. We can't separate the gift from the giver. It's connected. The difficult thing isn't for God to be present to us, though. That's not the difficult thing because he always is. He's always present with us. The difficulty is this. Are we present to him? That's the difficult part. When we read his words to us, we encounter God. When we speak to him, we encounter God. When we have conversations about him with others, even through messaging apps and video chats or whatever the thing is, we encounter God. Organizing to be present with God, organizing our lives to be present with God means having a life of joy. That's what it means. Because where God is, joy is also. Now think of the jailer here, from utter despair to overflowing joy, because he met God. This inward reality of joy led to the outward action of radical hospitality, welcoming the enemy. Overflowing joy leads to radical hospitality. So if you've never experienced a joy like this, don't miss out on it. Do not miss God. God is there. Don't miss him. And the way that God has made himself known, has made himself be known, is through community. Through people who know you and through people who are known by you. Look, you can listen to much better Sunday messages by going basically anywhere else. You, There are so many better speakers out there, but you don't need better speakers more than you need the message to be embodied by a community, a gospel-formed family. You need that. I'm telling you, because I need that. It's what the Bible says, what God himself says that we need. 
We have to have it. And that's what Redeemer is, is one expression of, this, of, of the church, a family that is always open, even if you consider yourself an enemy. We don't. We would love to serve you and pray for you, whoever you, whoever you might be, whoever you are. We don't know who's watching this, but we would love to, to love you more and serve you well. So if you head to RedeemerMCR.com prayer, we've made it really easy for you to submit prayer requests that we will pray for. And we have been praying for people who have who've, um, commented on there. We've made it really easy for us to connect. Now, some of you have experienced this joy. And as you're reading this, like, yes, that I, I have been transformed from death to life. And you know what it's like to experience God's presence. Can I say, keep on pressing into that. Keep on pressing into that. Do not give up pressing into that. It's a good fight. It is a fight, but it's a good fight. It's keep in it. If you don't have someone in your corner pushing you, encouraging you, telling you to get back out there through the power of the Spirit, you need someone in your corner. Get someone in your corner. If you're part of Redeemer, there's no excuse. There, there's no excuse. There, there are people who want to be that for you. You would be the only reason stopping others from doing that. And this is why Redeemer has what we call core groups. Right now, it could be as simple as a text each week, asking what you're learning from the Word this week, or how are you praying, or what you need to pray for, whatever it is. You cannot do this by yourself. You think you can, but you cannot. You can't do this by yourself. The Bible tells us over and over and over, God has designed us to be needy, to be needy for other humans to come through for us. We need others to grow in our faith. And that means you need to put yourself out there and say, I need people. Or maybe you already have those people. Let's be more honest. Let's be more open with where we need help. On a side note, maybe some of us need to think about what radical hospitality looks like in our lives now. Uh, hospitality is more than having people over at your house, um, which I guess we could have some people in back gardens and stuff now. Well, the question really we need to think uh, is, who is set against us? Who do we believe is set against us? Who are we in competition with? Who frustrates us? Who angers us? You have that person in your head? You got them? Or that group of people in your head? Maybe it's a massive group of people. Maybe I'm in that group of people. Do not live with a hard heart. Ask God to give you his heart, one that seeks to serve enemies, not get back at them or shut them out. Now, if you, once God's enemy, have experienced his overflowing joy in your heart, there's no place for you to withhold that from other people, even people who you perceive as your enemy. Whatever that other person has done to you, however horrible it is, I'm guaranteeing you pales in comparison of how you've acted towards God, even forgiven of a million, billion percent times more. Not many people have had a father accuse them of a crime they didn't commit and have the FBI come in, and yet that is so small as to what I've done to Jesus. How can I withhold forgiveness from my father? If you get that, if you get what that's about, you will also get how you have to walk in hospitality to others and serving others and loving others well. Now, this doesn't mean that we are okay with abuse. It doesn't mean we're okay with any kind of injustice. It doesn't mean we become doormats for others to walk over. It doesn't mean that we have to sometimes guard our hearts against people who are going to destroy it or, or change it. But it does leave hope for forgiveness. It does leave hope for unity in the church. It does leave hope for serving others. And often, withholding forgiveness from someone else doesn't affect that other person. It's affects us. It continues to bring harm on ourselves. 
That is a much bigger topic that we can get to cover here. But for this story, all of us are asked this. How can we live more radically hospitable lives? What would it look like to be a church known for its radical hospitality? How could we serve others who would be surprised to be served? The only way we can do this, all of this, experience contentment, freedom, and joy, is because Jesus took on our discontentment, took on our oppression, took on our shame. The ultimate discontentment is Christ on the cross, crying out to his Father. He's never been disconnected from, asking the Father, why have you turned away from me? That's the ultimate discontentment. The ultimate oppression is the weight of our sin upon Jesus, bringing him to death, more than just physical pain. Death, for all of us, is the ultimate oppressor. We will all, we are all held under it. The ultimate shame for Jesus is being hung on a cross in public outside the city to die like a criminal, naked, alone. I mean, if you've seen a painting of Jesus on the cross, probably all of us have, there's always like some kind of strip of cloth covering, um, covering him so he's not completely naked. But most likely, he was completely exposed, completely naked on the cross. That's, that's shameful. Jesus took it all. In his death, he put to death our discontentment, our oppression, our shame. And in his resurrection, he does not give discontentment. He, does, he gives us contentment. He doesn't oppress us. He frees us. He doesn't shame us into doing what we ought to do. He gives us an overflowing joy, freeing us to be able to live in ways we couldn't before. And that's what it means for Jesus' life to become our life. And if you believe in him the way the jailer did, the way Lydia did, this gets to be your life. This is what you get to live out of. And we get to bring all the dark parts of our hearts to Jesus. He sets things right. He'll mend the broken, whatever it is. And if you follow him already, or if you don't, all of us would do well to draw closer to Jesus. All of us can be drawn closer to Jesus, to become more present to the ever-present God, presiding over our lives, loving us, singing over us. If you don't have a family of others to do this with, we would love to have you as part of Redeemer. You can go to the website that you see at the bottom, RedeemerMCR.com slash live, and there'll be a sign-up button there. Uh, we would love to have you as part of our missional communities, where we really get to know and be known by each other. Again, you fill out that same link, and we can, we can connect you. Now, for all of us, every day, we, get, we are tempted to give up, or at least to kind of give up for that day. Following Jesus is a protest against that spiritual inertia that we all have. It's a protest. And if we aren't present to him, we should not expect to grow closer to him and experience the fullness of life. We, shouldn't, we should just not expect to be more open-hearted without him being involved. So let's keep in it. Let's keep in the fight. Let's keep in it, knowing that he's always there, always in control, always generously giving his contentment, his freedom, and his joy. Let me pray.